Welcome back to the Wardens of Westeros podcast brought to you by the guys here at District Dogma. I am your host, Bauer, and joining me today is Matt. Hold the door. Hold the door, Bauer. I am holding the door for you, sir. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. This is our Game of Thrones Season 6, Episode 5, Recap and Review. Uh, before we get started, um, a listener of ours named Ross, shout out, uh, actually got us a sponsor this week, Matt. So uh, this week's episode is brought to you by Sandor's House of Poultry. You'll want to eat every damn chicken in the place. And I hear they also do the every damn chicken in the place challenge where if you eat every chicken in the place, you get a free t-shirt and your name on the wall of fame. Yes, absolutely. Love it. Go check those guys out. Yeah. So dude, how does your heart feel after all this? I really didn't know what to think. We were betrayed. We were saddened. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of emotion in this episode. Absolutely. So we start out at the wall, and we see Sansa, who gets a letter. And I just remember thinking, don't let this be the pink letter round two. Please don't let it be. <laughs> so Sansa receives word to meet Littlefinger in Molestown. And oh, we all remember Molestown. Exactly. And <laughs> I tell you, we finally see a different Sansa. Uh, yeah, we do. And, you know, she, she was f very powerful. She's finally independent, is making her own decisions. Uh, and I, really, she just kind of plays Littlefinger for the fool. Yeah, so she is not taking his crap anymore. And I love that she just calls him out from the get-go. Like, did you have any idea what this guy was going to do to me? Because I'm pretty sure you did, and you sent me in anyway. Yeah. So, so what is your opinion on that? Do you think that Littlefinger knew what Ramsey was? Or, or maybe th that he knew something, you know, you know, that he was off, but maybe not to the extent that Ramsey actually was? Well... Okay, so let's just assume you let's just assume they hear about it like in stories and such and that the things that, about Theon are really only recognized by those that are directly in the mix, like his family or the people in the castle, stuff like that. Um I do <clears throat> I do think Baelish he, you know he's conflicted here cuz he likes Sansa because of Catelyn, but he always has a, an ex, you know an ulterior motive, so I'm not really sure though if he knew to the extent of what Ramsey would be capable of yeah. with her. Now, before before we move on though, notice that she kind of without being graphic, she kind of elaborates that there was more to the story. Like she has dealt with more than we have seen. Oh yeah, and obviously from that very serious rape scene that we had whenever it was her wedding night. Yeah. But she really lays it on, and not just lays it on Littlefinger, but kind of on the viewer as well, saying that, hey, you know, if, if for some reason you forgot what I've been through, here it is. Let me lay it all out for you. Yeah, it's not all just, you know, we we jumped the wall, and now we're, you know, in safety again. Ex like, we, we went through a perilous path. Exactly. And it's really like this whole The North Remembers type thing, you know, and she's trying to make the viewer remember just as much as she's going to try to make everyone else remember. 
Hmm, and, I like that correlation. And I, I really liked it. Sh- she's sitting there talking to him and says, well, either you willingly knew what Ramsey was capable of and you put me there anyway, or mm-hmm. you're just ignorant to what is going on. And you, you, that's two huge blows to Peter <laughs> Baelish. Oh, yeah. He was not a happy camper about that. No. And so we get a little bit of insight into his movements as well, and we see that the Knights of the Vale are now posted at Mount Kalen. And yeah, I don't know how this is going to play out. So obviously he is going to make some kind of offensive play later in the season. But as we know, he's not necessarily friendly to the Starks, but he is very friendly to Catelyn, or was very friendly. So I'm really mm-hmm. curious to see it how his allegiances play out because it's I think it's going to be this struggle to where it's his love for Catelyn and that's now been you know uh, given on to Sansa versus mm-hmm. his love and his want for power. And so I'm really excited to see how that plays out. It's kind of like the devil and the angel on his shoulder, and he's got to make a, a tough decision soon. Absolutely. A tough, a tough decision he does have to make. Uh, but there's a more complex part to this, and Sansa actually uses it to her advantage later on. But, you know, he alludes to, one, Knights of the Vale, but, two, Brendan the Blackfish yep. has apparently retaken River Run. Uh, and we haven't heard from that guy in two two and a half seasons. And, yeah, so if you haven't kept up with everything, it's very easy to forget about who he is. And even whenever they do yeah. the the flashbacks to the, the previously on Game of Thrones, there's going to be a lot of people who don't know who the Blackfish is. And sure. this is, uh, he, he so like we said, he, he has recently retaken River Run from the Freys, I believe, who are holding the Frey and Lannister forces were the ones who were holding the castle after the Red Wedding. Yeah, so the Freys, for sure, are are just all wrapped up in that storyline. Because they still have, if you'll remember, Ed Muir is the person that was actually getting married yes. at the Red Wedding. Mm-hmm. And so he is still basically a prisoner in his own home, kind of a thing. Correct. Uh, <clears throat> and so he's, uh, he's dealing with that. And then Brendan, uh, in the books, just to differentiate, and this is a spoiler, uh, just along the way, he escapes... And kind of goes into like a canal kind of thing, and he gets out. He gets out never like, and he wasn't seen for a while. Yeah. So yeah, he is resurfacing. Exactly, and so th- that still is kind of Littlefinger's like last little blow he can throw in saying that hey, you may think I'm useless, but I'm really not. I do have some worth. So that's kind of like his. Yeah, you can kill me if you want to, but I can still be valuable to you. Yeah, absolutely. And so then we move on across the narrow sea to Bravos, and we are in round five of Arya versus the Waif. And Man, it is just like a match, UFC match that will not end. And it's very one-sided. <laughs> yeah, it is. And li- like I said, even in episode one, we called this and said that we're going to get many, many episodes of Arya just getting the crap beaten out of her. And finally, when you think she's going to start making some progression, she gets her eyes back. She starts, you know, know, defending herself a little bit more. Well, then the waif just goes unarmed and still beats the hell out of her. 
Yeah, this was a... Okay, so I know a lot of people, including I think both of us, are a little frustrated with just how this has gone. But, a couple of like prefaces here. Maisie Williams, who plays Arya, talked about two major things this season that she thought kind of stood in the way. Like, it wasn't a typical Arya that we had seen before. One, she was facing a setback, but the setback was her blindness. And that she really thought her performance was going to be affected because she didn't have eyes for the first couple episodes. Yes. And then, you know, like the other major thing is that she's having to prove herself. So she's coming from a place of loss and, you know, they don't trust or respect her really. And so she's having to earn her keep all over again. Exactly. And I'm really excited to see how this is going to play out as well. And I think everyone else is because she's been down and out for so long and she finally is kind of making some progressions and she's learning. And so we get a little history lesson of the faceless men from Jacken. And mm-hmm. he, he talks about them founding the free city of Bravos, which I don't know if that's entirely true, the, the narrative that he gave. And I'm not very familiar with the history of Bravos, but it was founded by slaves who were um, escaping the Valyrian freehold. They were slaves in Valyria who escaped to yep. found the city of Bravos. And they were very incognito for a while, and nobody really knew that Bravos was existing as a city until they were already up and running. So. I don't know if the Faceless Men necessarily had that much to play in the founding of Bravos, but I know that they obviously have a very strong influence on the city now. Yeah, so, so I, I think you're I think you're right on with what Jockin said and what it actually means or how it all went down. Yeah, I don't really know if they you know, it, they may have been the first people there, but they don't they certainly don't quote run the city. You know what I mean? The Iron Bank plays a large role. There, It seems to be a very heavy commerce uh-huh. area. Um, and for good measure. They have the Iron Bank. People travel there. It's pretty easy to get there, you know, from Westeros. Yeah. You know, they're one of the easternmost, uh, I mean, westernmost eastern cities, if that makes yeah. sense, from Essos. The, uh, the, the most western city on the eastern continent. Yes. And... Uh, Anyway, no, I, I like what you said about uh, maybe he was playing it up a little bit, but maybe it's not exactly how it went down. Valyria uh, is such a mystery to everybody, and there's so many people that kind of either made it out before or made it out after, barely, things like that, that we don't really quite know a whole lot about. Yeah. Uh, but, like, I just want to re-say... Um, I really did respect their decision to bring back Jockin and kind of uh, simplify this storyline. Just just in the sense of it would be very hard to uh, have a different person, you know, do this stuff with Arya, like run her through all these things, these trials and tribulations. Yeah. Well, and it, so I it, yeah. Oh, I was saying the thing with Jackin is is that it's really only a face that we recognize. And the good thing about the faceless men, it could really be anybody, but it's a normal face for Arya, and it's a normal face for the audience. And so 
really glad that they didn't go too deep down the rabbit hole with what they could have done with this whole faceless man story uh, plot line. Yeah. One, I know I, I know I always yell at them for oversimplifying things, but I do think this is one of those leaps that they just could not have logically taken if they had cast somebody else. Because uh, in the books, you think this person is jocking, but he does not have the same face. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's a that's just one thing. That I know we've got a lot more to see from them, but that's one thing I've noticed that I thought has really delivered um, on the storyline. Yeah. But well, like, well, he's taking on the role as her teacher. Yeah, absolutely. And he, you know, he's trying to bring her in. But I, I'm very, very tired of our faceless babysitter, the waif. Absolutely. I, I just can't. I, I, I'm done with that chick. And so then Jackin gives Arya a task. And yep. this just is a heads up for all of our book readers out there. If you, sp- spoiler alert, if you haven't read the sample chapters, but this is yep. a direct storyline out of Arya's Winds of Winter chapters. Uh, it's one of the previews that George released a little while back. And so, essentially, what she is tasked to do is to go and find this actress. And that's all we know. So, we get to the the theater stage, and we find out that it's actually a reenactment of pretty much seasons one, two, one and two. (laughs) Yeah. And a a very poor job, obviously. (laughs) And so, I don't know if... The free cities don't get much television or much entertainment, but that was like the least entertaining thing ever. Yep. I mean, very boring, just like so slapstick, and maybe that was the point. Yeah. Um, I felt like going into this season that this particular set of events was like way overhyped. I understand that it's just a play and a reenactment, but I had heard they were they were making a huge deal out of this. One because Arya was seen uh, in these scenes, uh-huh. like from the early pictures and footage, and that it was a reenactment. Uh, so they thought this would kind of get deeper into something else, and I, I don't think it's quite going there. Yeah, and so we see this girl who has been through so much and has kind of, well, at least we think, put the past behind her to go on and kind of relive her life. And then she just gets thrown back into it in a matter of mm-hmm. seconds. And so I'm a little pissed at Jackin for giving her this assignment, but I guess it makes sense because if she is truly no one, is trying to become no one, then mm-hmm. realistically that shouldn't bother her. And she seems to handle it a lot better than I would, I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, considering... Well, yeah, I mean, they cast this guy who plays a bumbling Ned Stark, which we all know is so inaccurate. Absolutely. Now, say what you will, he, you know, he played to his honor, which was his strength, but it didn't pay off in the end, and he was dealing with some pretty batshit crazy people like Joffrey. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, this guy was just all over the place Yeah, trying to play Ned. Well, and they tried to paint him as him wanting the Iron Throne, which... Yeah, which was is, so weird. Well, and it's not true. And I guess that goes back to the my, my comment on our episode three podcast that the winners are really the ones who rewrite history. And so yes. obviously Ned was trying to protect Robert's legacy. 
And in that, since he lost, he's now written as a traitor who was just looking out for his self-interests. Yeah. So. And you're right. The, that's how he will be remembered through most of the land. Unless, you know, people that are favorable to him eventually are installed. Exactly. Onto the throne. And so then we get this little backstage scene with all of its needless obscenities. <laughs> and so unnecessary. Well, and and I will say that this must be how female viewers feel throughout most of the series. And obviously I know that the graphic nature of HBO will bring in people just to watch some of that content. Yeah. Which they're really missing a big part of the show. But, you know, all of the female viewers have to sit here and say, oh, yeah, look, she looks so good without her clothes off. And now I guess it's kind of uh, uh, all the guys getting a taste of their own medicine and be careful what you wish for type thing. Yeah, well, this is one of the... Now, I know Amelia Clark went all in last episode, but she's always talking about we need more male nudity. Well, she got it. Yeah, we all got it, unfortunately. And so yeah, in this backstage scene, we see that there are two actresses, the the girl who is playing Sansa and Lady Crane, who is the actress who is playing Cersei in in that mm-hmm. in that play. It's kind of like Inception. It's the 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 play or the the show inside of the show. Yeah. And we find out that she is a rum drinker and so Jackin gives Arya this flask of poison and that's how he is wanting to try to eliminate Lady Crane. So we go back to the House of the Black and White, and we find out that maybe the faceless men have some ulterior motives to to their methods. Mm-hmm. And so, are the faceless men are they like hitmen? Like you know, if if you if you pay enough, they'll they'll take yeah. anything out of you. And and I get the the quote that Jackin says when he says, "Does death only come for the wicked and leave the decent behind?" Mm-hmm. But so we've we've talked about this. Um, I I think it was episode two that we we recapped. But remember when I was talking about like who runs the who runs the group? Yeah, like who runs the faceless men? Uh-huh. Kind of a thing. And that's something we've never been shown. We know that there's got to be some kind of like hierarchy or structure, mm-hmm. and that Jockin is probably part of that, or to some extent he is. But yeah, I agree with you. Like, what is the motive? Can you pay to have somebody taken out? Exactly. And that kind of undermines all of this religious, uh, I call it like religious fanaticism almost of becoming no one in the the faceless or in the many-faced God. And so so I'm saying you can't call yourself a religion if you're going to take bribes to take hits out on people. So, so that, that's why I don't yeah. really understand why you have to go through this process of becoming no one and to try to serve them. It's all supposedly to serve the many-faced God. But if you're going to take money for people to, to do these actions, then is there really yeah. a many-faced God or is it really just, you know, the, 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 the form of currency is the God that you take at that moment in time or the form of payment yeah. is really well, it's the like- God? I'm going to say something totally contradictory to everything that the faceless men are about. 
but is the many face god like the face of the organization yeah exactly <laughs> like that's who they put up to be like you know this is the main the main deal that we subscribe to and you've got to give up all this stuff trust us fully and you know you can be brought in um but yeah i do wonder uh you know what the motivations are and the quote is just spot on because i also mentioned that they only take certain people you know there's no faceless men now look jockin was in westeros to be fair but like we don't see a lot of that we know faceless men just like taking out people in westeros yeah you know, just normal, everyday people. It yeah. could be happening, but it's kind of... Uh, I think it's kind of far-fetched to assume that that's happening in a lot of places. Correct. But we know that it does happen, at least. Yes. And so, like, they probably do send, you know, like, they dispatch people. Yeah. It, it's. I'm just... I'm really curious. It's kind of like the Wizard of Oz whenever... Once you see the curtains pulled back and and you see who's actually running the show, and it, mm-hmm. everything makes a lot more sense. I, I guess that's how this is going to play out in the end. Yeah. And so then we move on to the Three Eyed Raven Cave, to where uh, Bran and Blood Raven are traveling back in time, and they see the Children of the Forest. And this the, is our, our, oh. the, the first time <laughs> where we really get to to see the the that there's some kind of culture. You know, dealing with the whites and the children of the forest, they're always these symbols and different yep. kind of cryptic meanings. And so we get to see a little bit more of that uh, in this flashback. This is probably in my top five of all favorite scenes. Only because of what we learned. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I'd really... It's one of those things like maybe we should or I should have figured it out by now. But like think about how much lore, history, oral tradition, like everything that they've talked about, the children and their beginnings and how far they've come and all that stuff to this moment in season 6 of the show. I mean, insane. Yeah. And so the biggest question is is obviously who is the guy who they turned into the White Walker? Yeah, who was the first White Walker? Yeah, and and so for, from my reading that I can establish, that is not the Night's King, at least in the canon of the books. And the way I'm getting at that is is that the Night's King was the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, the 13th Lord Commander. Yes. And he fell in love with a... They didn't say that she is a White Walker, but it's kind of implied. And then he joined the others eventually. And so everybody was saying, oh, well, that's the Night King. That's how he started out. I don't believe that that is the Night's King. Just as a heads up to everybody out there. Yeah, there's been a lot of... Yeah, there's been a lot of speculation about this. He's definitely not the Night's King that was a Stark. Um, because we all know just from uh, Dan, Dave, and George that the Night's King is a position, and it moves. Yes. You know, from person to person. Um, 
And so, but they would have already been in existence, you know, like at the time of the 13th Lord Commander. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because that was the point of the wall, mm-hmm. you know, after the Age of Heroes and all that mess and the long, all that stuff. But anyway, um, this was just insane. So we'll just, we'll just, I want to take this one apart a little bit. Just so everybody's aware, and I know you, you can watch and see it for yourself, but they use obsidian and just shove it in this guy's heart. Yeah. And he becomes a White Walker. And the children here have created basically a weapon that they explain to Bran, you know, in the next scene, that we had to create these people because the first men were slaughtering us. Correct. And, and so for, for, I mean, those, for those of y'all that don't know, um, the, the initially the first men were cutting down all the weirwoods and destroying the homes of the children of the forest. Just to throw it out there in case y'all didn't know. So, yeah, so I mean, this is like a direct... I mean, that was like a direct intervention. But think about how much of Westerosi history besides... Now, you know, Aegon and his landing is a separate situation because that's much more recent history. Mm-hmm. But, like, how Westeros, as a, if you're looking at, like, a game board and you're setting it up for the first time, the children have literally laid the foundation for almost every major situation that was leading up to Aegon's landing. Yeah. And, and you just, know, like, why the Seven Kingdoms the way they are, like... Now, they didn't control the who was coming there, but they definitely controlled who stayed there because of all the fighting. Absolutely. And just for a little heads up for our listeners out there, to, to put it in perspective, Aegon's Landing, which is whenever the Targaryens came and conquered the Seven Kingdoms, that was 300 years ago, roughly, from where the story's taking place now. Yes. This whole deal with the Children of the Forest creating the White Walkers was about 10,000 years ago. So, just for yeah, a little so timeline narrative. There's a lot of stuff, you know, that happened in between there. And, you know, all the major houses of Westeros were pretty much founded after the Age of Heroes. I Well, I guess r- b- during. Yes. And then when the Roinar came in in the south, and then uh, the Andals and all the Andals invasion, that's really when everything started to form up. Correct. But the first men were really the first threat to the children. And so that's why we assume, you know, they created the White Walkers because they were losing. Correct. And but so, now, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I was to say, and so now it's, it's kind of like that weapon that you build and <laughs> you know it's powerful and you know that it will meet your need for the the present, but you don't know how that's going to affect the future. Yeah, and boy, does it affect the future. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Keep going. Oh, no, 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 I'm good. I was basically going to say the same thing, and that now the White Walkers, after thousands of years, view themselves in their own right. You know, like, look, we, we can speculate all day long about, you know, did the children actually have control over them? Uh, did they create them and it got out of hand? It's like Skynet and Terminator. We weren't expecting yeah. it to come alive and turn against us. But I bring up all of that to say we don't know the circumstances 
uh, surrounding that. But we know, though, that in the end, this is what got me. We know from George that the children and the first men eventually had a pact. Yes. Because now that's how it's told to us. They had a pact because the White Walkers were advancing far too much and even infringing into the children's territory. So they push back, the wall goes up, and, you know, it's a bunch of many conflicts up until now. Exactly. And So there's a lot, there's a lot going on here, <laughs> like yeah, in the terms of the timeline and whose side is who on. It's like World War One and Two. like the Soviet Union was our enemy in the first one and they were our friend in the second one because they were getting hammered. Exactly. <laughs> And and the great thing about this is this is only about a two and a half to three minute segment of this episode, but you can go back and talk about the lore and everything surrounding it. We could do an hour just on that. And so just in this little bit of screen time, they answer so many questions that people have been speculating about in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we finally get some sort of an answer. Uh, but man, like I said, I just, the moment that it happened, I was like, this is insane. I just like had a huge like fan moment right there. Yeah. And, and just as a heads up to our listeners out there, um, whenever Game of Thrones releases their DVD of the seasons, they also add, um, a history and lore type bonus content on there. And it's the history of Westeros and it's narrated by the characters. And you can find these on YouTube. And there is one of Bran explaining the children of the forest and the White Walkers and the First Men. And it's really, really good. It's narrated <clears throat> excuse me, it's narrated by uh the actor who plays Bran. And I highly recommend yeah, yeah, I highly recommend any of y'all or all of y'all checking that out. So then we move on to the trailer park of Westeros, aka Pike. <laughs> to to see the uh, the impending king's moot there, and so obviously, as we all knew, that Yara was gonna claim the salt throne, and also, like we knew, it was not gonna be very widely accepted. Yeah, well, clearly, you know, they're one. They're they're such a ragtag crew anyway, but. You know, women already have enough trouble on this show. And man, they were not going to let one lead them. No. And kind of like like I said, you know, this is the trailer park of Westeros. And <laughs> they are not up for change. They don't like it very much. And as great as they want to be, they're not progressive enough to really achieve greatness currently, I guess. And Yeah, they're not set up for that. And so Yara goes and says, well, I claim the salt throne. And one of the sea captains comes up and says, well, that's over my dead body, especially whenever we have a male, you know, you know, a male person in the bloodline who could potentially take over. And then Theon yeah. goes and bids for Yara. And he seems to do a pretty good job. Yeah, I agree. He, um... Uh... I really have to say that he's been. I don't know if George. I don't know if George has intended this to be as smooth as Dan and Dave have, 
But Theon has really been able to kind of reform himself. Like, he's really coming back. Yeah. You know, like, I guess if you're, you know, if you're removed from it long enough and you've got, you know, decent support system, you can accomplish anything. I really do. And look, I know what Theon has done and his motives, and I questioned him, you know, uh, uh, at, at many points in the story. But, yeah, I totally agree with you. He came forward, he was clear, he was concise, uh, and I thought he gave some good reasons. Exactly. And he carried out his word. Mm-hmm. Like I said in episodes one and two, Theon's off my shit list. I'm cool with Theon now. Don't have any hard feelings against him. So then we get Euron, who walks in and is like, well, no, I'm going to claim the Salt Throne. And then he goes on to admit that he killed Balon. Yeah, this was way different. It, everybody's just totally cool with it. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah. He, he killed the king. Cool. Let's just let's follow this dude now. <laughs> but well, he, you can tell you can tell that real quick. You can tell that that was the catalyst for yeah, eventually Yara hightails it out of there. She yeah. takes her fleet. Uh, but yeah, you can tell it's a catalyst. But I agree with you. There's not a whole lot of emotion going on. Yeah, exactly. I'm not saying I was a fan of Balon, but still. And I'm I'm really disappointed in Dan and Dave for the lack of character development surrounding Euron because in the books he's this infamous pirate and everybody knows who he is. Yep. And like we said uh, last week, the King's Moot, everybody is supposed to kind of give this tribute like their treasure, they're, they're pirates, so mm-hmm. whenever they claim the Salt Throne, they're supposed to throw some kind of treasure to say, hey, I can, you know, I'm the best pirate out there. And they left sure. that part totally out of all of this. So we don't really get to see how awesome Euron actually is. He's really, Obviously, he's painted as the villain mm-hmm. in this, but he does make some good points about how poorly Balon was running things. I mean, he was like, he got us in two wars that we could never win. He's really straight us off the path. And then he apologizes that he didn't kill him earlier. Yeah. But maybe that's the thing, though. Maybe it really was that bad, and we just hadn't quite experienced it, you know, on the show. We had very, very limited time on the Iron Islands. Yes. I think, you know, if you went through and did, like, a comprehensive how much cumulative time had been spent in each place, I mean, we had maybe been there for 15 minutes. Exactly. (laughs) You know, in however many seasons. And I will say I agree with you wholeheartedly that I I think his character development has was stalled or stunted. They didn't do enough. If I were them, and I I look, I know they are up against a lot. It's a very complex show. There's a lot of money and a lot of moving parts and limited amounts of time. But I would have introduced him in season five toward the end. Yeah. Built him up and then got him to where he is now. Exactly. And in the relation of importance to the overall story, I think that he is very comparable to Yara in, in their importance in the story. And you go back yeah. and look at all of this time they have spent developing Yara and all the screen time that she's had, because pretty much any time there are Ironborn involved, with the exception of them taking Winterfell, mm-hmm. she she has been in some way, shape, or form involved in it. 
Absolutely. And Good I, point. And I'm not saying that Euron is as important necessarily as Yara, but he is at least two-thirds important as Yara is. And so we should have seen him, even if it was just a glimpse, kind of like they did with the Blackfish, and show him mm-hmm. in previous seasons and then bring him back in when he's relevant to the story. But at least we had that foundation in the past to, to know a little bit about him, and they didn't do it with Euron, so shame on you, Dan and Dave. <laughs> like I said, that, that's the good thing about this podcast is is that we can give our opinions, we can praise them when they do well, but also hold the right to be critical whenever I don't think they do things so well. Because my, my opinion matters that much to them, I'm sure. <laughs> and so then Euron lays out his plans to marry Daenerys. Yes. So can I just say real quick, you may be saying this too, so I apologize. But I mean, this is a decision they made because they didn't cast Victarion, right? I mean, uh, he's absolutely, I think, inheriting some of that. Yeah, I think they may end up splitting that between some people because... Uh, I guess this is a spoiler too. It was released in the yep. trailers for the season, but we know that Yara is gonna make it across the narrow sea to do something. We don't know mm-hmm. what, so I, I think they may be splitting that Victorian storyline across um, across those Yo, two characters. I think Tyrion, I think Tyrion, Yara, and Euron will make up whatever he was up to. Yeah. Which, and like I said, I, I was just critical of him. But I also like to give them the benefit of the doubt of telling us what we need to know and and to, to keep it at, at a kind of manageable pace. Because the more characters you introduce, the more confused most of the show or show watchers get. And so, obviously, Euron has done his homework because he knows that Daenerys needs ships. Yep. And I really liked this connection. Yeah. And so, obviously, he's a worldly person. And like I said, they could have explained this so well if they would have established a little bit of character development in him. But he's traveled all around the world. He's been to places that we probably don't even know on the map that they're there. And so, he, he's very in tune with what is going on. And so, I think that was really awesome how they said that, that he knows what's going on in Marine right now and how he still equates that to taking the Iron Throne in progressing the Ironborn storyline. Yeah. No, I agree. We're, uh, I think we're yet to see some interesting things from, from Euron, but his introduction is advancing, you know, their cause. He's also kind of the catalyst to, I think, moving uh, Yara forward. But I, I'm very, you know, like, I know Theon took up for her, but, like, it's going to be interesting seeing them work together. Yeah. Well, there's very much a, a system of it's Yara's world and Theon's just living in it. So I, I think yeah, that, that's, that's at least good. But so obviously Euron wins the king's moot and is declared the king of the Iron Islands. But first they essentially drown him. <laughs> and yeah. I thought that was really cool and, and interesting to see. So Yep, you've got a... You've got to come back on your own and then wear a fancy crown. Quote. Exactly, but that's what I was saying. So what happens if he doesn't come back? I mean, obviously, they think he's probably not fit to rule. But Boom. And exactly. So, and so one thing I didn't really understand was as soon as he you know, comes to, 
the first thing he says is, where are my niece and nephew? Let's go murder them. <laughs> and, well, I think they saw the writing on the wall. Yeah, and I, I guess that's some good foresight. So, obviously, Theon and Yara got the hell out of Dodge and took a bunch of the ships as well, which obviously they knew that Euron was having those as bargaining chips for Danny. So maybe they're heading to Marine, you know? Just throwing that out there. Maybe they are. I'm yeah, I'm just trying to figure that out. There is a lot going on still. You know, like I do feel like this season we've gotten the most closure, but we also just keep getting questions. Absolutely. You know, and as we get closer and have less uh hopefully we don't have less episodes, but I think they're they warned us early on purpose. Yeah. Um Anyway, point being, we've still got a lot of irons in the fire. Correct. And so, speaking of Danny, we go across the narrow sea again to Vase Dolthrak. Yeah. And we get the lovely trio of Daenerys, Jorah, and Dario. And Jorah goes on to show Daenerys his grayscale. Mm-hmm. And so, one interesting thing that I stumbled across today, and this is just a little piece of information if our, uh, for our listeners out there, Jorah actually has what they call the Gray Plague, and it's a little bit different than Gray Scale. It's faster acting, and it is incurable. Now, Shireen has Gray Scale, which is a little bit different. It is uh, a little bit slower acting, and it actually does have a cure. Now, I don't think they're going to go that far in the show to try to delineate the two, but I thought that was a cool little piece of information that I learned today. Yeah, absolutely. Good work. Yeah, a little bit of wiki research. And so Daenerys is kind of like, I've banished you twice. You've come back twice. So I can't get rid of you, and you keep coming back. And then Jor goes on to explain what everybody already knew, and it was that he loves us. He finally said it. He finally said it. And so but I'm, to what end? It, it, well, exactly. That's what I was going to say. And I'm curious if there are people who are really like rooting for this relationship to happen. Oof. Surely not. <laughs> Surely not. But I, mean, I don't know. I really do feel bad for him. Yeah. Like, you know, his dad was at the wall. He was trying to make some money. I do not endorse ever promoting slavery, but like the guy was selling some people and he's he's paid he has paid the price like 40 times over just in terms of Game of Thrones world. Yeah. But like man, something's got to give. Well yeah, and now he gets this really bad terminal disease and so she gives him the command of, "Well, go find the cure." Yeah. So, I, I mean, this, <laughs> it's like finding a needle in a haystack. That. You know, that that's a, the stereotypical needle in the haystack story. Yeah. This is, uh, you'll, I think you'll laugh. This is what I call hashtag stop the scales. <laughs> uh, so this is his new mission. And uh, for those of you, I just want to say real quick, for those of you who were uh, either following us on Twitter last night or saw it today, we were... Uh, we live tweeted the episode, so a couple of these I had u- we had used last night. But I just I, I thought that one was funny. 
Because and, she's like, you have to stop everything you're doing for me and go take care of yourself. Which yeah. I thought was just another Daenerys moment of leadership. Absolutely. And just, just in case y'all don't know, um, that is our Twitter handle is at District Dogma. So Holla. you can find us on Twitter. We like to keep up. We throw some funny memes and some pictures out there. It's a really good time. It will be sure it will surely enlighten your timeline. Absolutely. So, so after we talk to Danny in Vase Dolthrak, mm-hmm. we go back to her crew in Marine, and we finally see that Tyrion's plan is taking an effect. Yep. And so we notice that there's the killings have stopped, so to speak, and that, you know, they were right the whole time. Oh, Matt, you know one thing I wanted to talk about we did not talk about last episode um, in connecting the dots. So remember, we all remember when Varys uh, intimidates that chick who was ki- helping them kill uh, Unsullied. Yes. And, she's like, and he's like, you know, you can have a new life and all this stuff. I'm assuming, I know this is kind of simpleton, but like I'm assuming she's the one that helped them get the people to come in. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I like think she, she, like she knew who the ringleaders were in whatever the cities are, like where the information was coming, and then Varys was able to get them to come in. Yeah, or she at least connected him to somebody who could, you know, connect yes. those dots. Yeah, but I'm assuming that's how that went down. Yeah, I, I think that's what we're supposed to think as well. Okay, and so. We see that Tyrion's plan is working, and then we're introduced to the new Red Priestess named Kenvara. I love Kenvara. Me too, and (laughs) she's really awesome. And so I don't know if y'all remember back in Season 3, whenever we got Thoros of Myr, who was the guy who brought back Beric Dondarrion after he Mm -hmm. was killed by the Hound. And... There's this part where him and Melisandre are talking about his assignment. And he was assigned to go to King's Landing to try to spread, you know, the the religion. Mm-hmm. Well, we find out that I don't know if it was Kinvara who sent him, but now she is kind of the leader of the Red Priests and the Red Priestesses. Yeah, which is crazy. You know, like, we normally don't get a whole lot of backstory on those people. Exactly, and you so... Know? One thing that was, I'm sure everybody noticed, was that she had a necklace like Melisandre's, and so, oh yeah, you know what kind of uh, what are we gonna get with that? You never really know. <laughs> yeah, the featured neckwear of the Red Priesthood, exactly, is all the rage. And so, then she kind of explains that she's on Daenerys' side because this is a direct quote, direct quote, excuse me, that. She believes that the queen is the one who was promised. Yeah. And, and this is really cool because in the last episode, or I guess in episode three, we hear Melisandre say that John was the prince who was promised. And so we've heard this whole theory about literally the prince that was promised is going to lead the attack against the Long Night again and save the world. But the interesting thing about this prophecy is that it was written in Old Valyrian, which is a gender-neutral language. 
And so very good point. And so most people think that it's John, but there's a theory going around there that this could potentially be Daenerys, who is going to lead the Long Night or lead the uh, fight for the Dawn and combat the yeah. Long Night. Well, which is totally plausible. But you know, this is so George, just like trying to lead us off the path. Absolutely. And Kinvara actually does mention that there is a greater war still to come, which we obviously know. Yeah, we know what we know that's coming. Yeah, but not everybody else does. Yep. And so then we kind of get this little knowledge match of Varys, and he's trying to to play her and put her in his her place and establish you know that that he is a, that he knows everything. And boy, does she turn the tables quick on him. Oh, yeah, this was like, I, I kind of love when Varys gets caught off guard because you don't really, uh, you know, like he doesn't, one, he doesn't expect it. He is arrogant in that regard. He thinks he knows everything. Yeah. But, yeah, she was coming hardcore, telling him his origin story, you know, all that stuff. Exactly, and we don't see that often, and you can just tell on his face that he is just dumbfounded that she knows all of this. Yeah, I I think a little bit. Uh, I'm going to take a leap here. Uh, I think she is taking some characteristics of the character Quaith, who has a little bit more exposure in the books. Uh, not a ton, but she does appear to Daenerys uh, while she's in Marine. Yeah. And I know Daenerys is not currently present, but I do think Kinvara is taking on some of the attributes of the Red Priest uh, or the Red Priestesses, like being in Daenerys's kind of wheelhouse. Yeah. And so the big question I have is, how does she know all of this? Correct. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good question. And I wouldn't put it past Dan and Dave to never address that. But that that's just something that that was that was the one thing that was in my mind whenever she was given this long speech about everything that happened to Varys in the past. Yeah. Well, you would argue they all know a little bit more than they should, and it's kind of unexplained. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mel is the same way. Uh, Quaith was the same way. She knew about Jorah, you know, and he had, I mean, for the most part, he was under the radar. Yeah. He was guarding Daenerys and Viserys and was just kind of doing his thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so. But yeah, I don't know how she knows. Yeah. And so then we uh, we move on back to the cave of the three-eyed raven and this is where we see Bran's character flaws start to come through and mm -hmm. he, he decides that he wants to get mischievous and do specifically what he's been told not to do and obviously we figure out or we know from previous events that nothing good ever happens whatever he tries to go out on a whim <laughs> you know that's true. Started in what? Epi did episode two? Was it episode two where he fell? Episode one. Fell? Episode one. It was one? Okay. Yeah, that's the pilot. I mean, that, that's what kicks off this whole entire series of what has happened. And so we see him go back to the past, and he sees the army of the Whites and the White Walkers. And so... The real question is, is this in real time or is it in the past? You know, 
there, there's always that timeline ambiguity that always happens. Obviously, whenever there's characters involved, like Ned or Benjamin, like we've seen when they go back, we know that's in the past. Yeah. But but we don't know much about the White Walker, so I, I couldn't tell if this was a flashback or him just going somewhere in the present. Well, yeah, and I had speculated. I was hoping we were going to get the past White Walkers, but I, I don't know. It's still unexplained, but I think these are present day. Yeah. Just and based on who the Night's King was. Well, exactly. And then we see the Night's King actually interact with Bran. <sighs> yes. And so then that just raises all of these questions that I'm sure everybody has that we don't have the answers to, surely. Yep. So he leaves this mark on Bran some way. And so the ra- uh, Three-Eyed Raven's like, you ain't got to go home, but you got to get the hell out of here. <laughs> and so, yep, he's so, got to go, man. Yeah, so the best thing is is that, you know, Bran asks, well, am I ready? And the Three-Eyed Raven's like, hell no, you're not ready. We've been doing <laughs> no. this for like three episodes. No, you're not ready. <laughs> No, he's not ready, and he screwed up, and he knows it. But now he's got to f- he's got to deal with it. Yeah, and, and so a lesson all all you people out there: there are consequences to your actions. It's yes, a, there are. And so then we take a quick cut to the wall, and it's John is kind of plotting his uh, his method to building an army, and we essentially find out that at least what is presented to us is that it's the Umbers, the Karstarks, and the Boltons versus John and Co. plus Manderleys yeah, whoever, and, and House Tully. Yeah. yeah, whoever, yeah, right now. And then whoever they've got to try to get out of the smaller houses. Exactly. And so then this is where Sansa kind of drops that little tidbit of information that's like, oh, well, my uncle has River Run now. And yeah, so she, you know, she's, I think she's overplaying her hand, you know, like she had so much promise. Now she's like deceiving the only people that are on her side. (laughs) Exactly. And so it's kind of like she's wanting to start playing the the game as everybody calls it, you know, the game of Thrones. And so she, she's, I guess she thinks she's trying to be clever, but you know, at the end of the day, she only has this group of people to trust, and I don't know why you would try to lie to them whenever they're exactly. literally well, all you have. Point. Yeah. Yeah. And so totally we, with you on that. We essentially find out that Brienne and Podrick are going to make the ride down to River Run to go rally the Tullys. And we actually knew that they were going to do this based on the trailer that released. Um, I think it was the first trailer, and we we saw Brian and Pod with the the trout, which is the yes. the Tully banner, and so we knew they were going to go down there at some point, and we kind of assumed that this is how it was going to play out. Well, then you get the whole you know side dialogue with Brianne. Poor Brianne, she just wants to protect people, and they keep sending her like she's a courier. Yeah, exactly. It's like. What was that chick with the bike? It was like an old anime. It's like Kiki's Delivery Service. It's like Brienne is just <laughs> on a horse all day long, and Pod is the little cat that follows her around 
and they just have to go from place to place. They've literally visited every place but Dorne yeah, at this point. That's true. And so, you know, <laughs> and so we get Sansa, who is obviously very connected to John, and so she makes John this coat like Ned's. And this is really the first time that we've seen the wolf sigil kind of come back into play, which I really like. Yeah. So th- that goes to show us that, you know, it- it's building up from here. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the-, the time is now. And so this is where it's. So-, so we see that John and everybody's going to hit the recruiting trail. And so th- the question is, are we going to have a national signing day where all the, uh, th- the houses put on either the, the Stark hat with a wolf or the the Bolton hat to see what side they declare for. I think that would be really cool to see. Uh but I'm interested to see how they approach this. Yeah. You know, like what's the what's the play? Will the Stark thing matter? I know that it's like it's tough for us because, you know, we all have our favorite Starks and we kind of root for them. Most of us do anyway. But uh I think it's going to be interesting to see how powerful that really is in the North. You know, does it really matter? Or have we just been led to believe that because they were always in power that it was a big deal? Yeah. Well, and another problem with this is is that historically the North has been very loyal to the Starks. Yeah. But the problem is is that in them being loyal, that caused for most of the the older generation to be killed when they followed Rob into battle against the Lannisters. You had the yeah, Car- that's true. you had Karstark who died, um Great John Umber died. And and so all these houses that were traditionally loyal due to the, the generation, you know, just passed down from mm-hmm. generations, well, they've kind of had their houses, you know, or they've had their family members killed because of the Starks. And so they're not just jumping into blind loyalty, which I don't know why the Boltons are any better, but yeah. well, it's like a new north. I mean, I think you summed it up well. This is a it's uncharted territory, I think. Um, yes, there are always sons to take over for their fathers, but that was a very, very chaotic time. Even I think more chaotic than Robert's rebellion for them. Yeah, exactly. And so then we we move back on to uh, the finale of the episode, uh, back to the the cave of the three eyed raven, and it's Mira talking to Hodor about how excited she is to get home, and to to cook mm-hmm. all of these you know these nice foods and things like that, and and Hodor is very involved and, and excited, and then all of a sudden he just kind of shuts down, and so I thought that was very interesting, and so Mira runs outside. And she sees the entire army, you know, knocking at the front door. Yep, they're here. And and once again, we've got children throwing fireballs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so Bran is then brought back to Winterfell, and he sees Rickard talking to Ned, actually, whenever he was mm-hmm. sending him to the Vale, which I thought was a cool piece of lore. Yeah, it uh, was. Uh, the, it was cool to see. Like, we've really got to, uh, you know, these are characters that are so, like, hyped and really make all of our current characters, like, who they are. Yeah. 
you know, like in the show. Mm-hmm. And so I think I, I really I really enjoyed that just as a quick aside. Yeah, and, and so you know, Bran is back in his vision, and meanwhile, like stuff is just hitting the fan around him on the inside of the cave. Yeah. I mean, this was an epic sequence. Yeah, and it's... And I think you had pointed it out to me that it wasn't terribly long, but man, it feels like ages. Yeah. <laughs> and so, first off, shout out to the, the production team. Um, I, I went and watched the behind-the-scenes footage that's on HBO, and the stuff that they... The work they put in to, to make that scene happen and to look as good as it did was just phenomenal. And so kudos to them. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, all the the whites are coming into the cave and Bran is still in his vision, but he can hear Mira, you know, in present time in his mm-hmm. vision. And so he wargs into Hodor and from what I can understand, this kind of short circuits his brain. Well, I guess he, he wargs into Willis at the time and it short circuits his brain essentially. And so this is where a bunch of the questions come up about, you know, the the space time continuum and mm-hmm. you know so what is your take on all that? Because I'm just kind of dumbfounded <laughs> by the whole thing, really and truly. Yeah, this was kind of like Inception, Game of Thrones version. Um, Okay, so we learn. Let's just take it piece by piece, and I'll do it as quick as as possible. So if we're concerned about, like, the space-time continuum and where Bran and this this advanced green-seeing, you know, really fits in, number one, the Night's King was able to touch him. So we know that there's more to it than originally met the eye. Also, you know, we talked about and pointed out when he's at the Tower of Joy that he screams out his dad's name. Now, he doesn't directly see him, and it could have just been coincidence, but, you know, Ned turns around. Um, Clearly, though, Bran can project into, at least right now, the past. Now, it is rumored, I don't know if it's written, I'm not going to talk out of turn, it is rumored that he can go into the future, like that they can move through all phases in time. Uh, we have not seen... I know this also sounds counterintuitive, but I want to point this out. Bran, you know, when he meets the Three-Eyed Raven, says, you know, oh, you're going to help me walk again. And he says, no, you won't need to because you're, you're going to fly. But we haven't seen Bran, other than warging into present-day people, do anything. Like, don't you think he could show up as himself? You know what I mean? Like, in the present, and, like, see himself laying on the ground. Okay, and so, my thing with with this is, is, so Bran obviously goes and sees the Night's King in what we're presuming as the present. So, does that mean that, like, he's existing in two places at one time, Mm -hmm. or... Yes. It's just, it's so weird, and I'm really hoping that we get a little more um, insight into what happens but yeah i mean you could argue that he is existing in two places or he has a physical embodiment in another place uh especially if he can interact with the white walkers now we haven't seen him interact with humans so there may be something different there uh i don't know if they're going to get that deep into the explanation if we ever find out uh but but 
he also has the ability to affect the people in the past, which leads us to the Hodor situation. Exactly. And so one thing I want to say is, is that with this whole ambiguity of how Bran affects the, the space-time continuum, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. there's this new theory that's going around that is called Bran the Originator. And the interesting thing about this and essentially the theory is is that everything that is hap- that has happened in the show like you know Ned's re- or Robert's rebellion and all of the you know the big events that have led us to where we are mm-hmm. have actually been originated by Bran because he is trying to alter the past so you know t- take him as as he is right now and he can obviously somewhat you know encounter and interact Mm -hmm. with the world around him in his visions that maybe he went back to the past to try to change it and ended up getting them where they are today so it's kind of like that self-fulfilling prophecy that all of the stuff that has happened essentially leads to bran which is super super interesting because bran in the present has no actual recollection of it Exactly. You know what I mean? He doesn't know if he, he had done it until he actually does it in present time, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> which is just such a mind bend. Exactly. And, and this is kind of getting into that Terminator territory. That's true. That That's that's really just kind of a rabbit hole that you want to get, that I don't want to get down at least. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, they're... Heading out of the back, Bran wargs into Hodor in the past. That also works him into Hodor in the future. And so yep. they're just trying to get the hell out of the cave. Oh, man, then, this was just epic. <laughs> yeah, and so we see the children grab their obsidian weapons, and one of them tries to kill a White Walker, and she is then stabbed and killed. Well, yep. then Mira just turns around and flings this... Uh, spear and she ends up killing a white walker so she's on that level now too (laughs) and so you know it's it's hodor who's being controlled by bran and mira and bran you know trying to get out of the back back door you know make a run for it yeah and then we see the first very upsetting thing and summer gets killed which is bran's direwolf and so I'm They're curious. They're just if, going down. Well, well, I know. And so I'm curious if they do this, if that happens in the books, if Summer actually gets killed in the books, or if Dan and Dave are just, you know, maybe trying to save a little CGI money since uh, it is both expensive. Are, both are possible. But uh, yeah. yeah, it has not been the season of the Dire Wolf. No, it is not. And so, really, all that leaves us, the only dire wolves that are left now are Ghost and Nymeria. Yep. Because Grey Wind was killed with Rob. Lady was killed in Season 1 by by Robert, actually. Uh, We had Shaggy Dog go down last episode. And now we got Summer, who, who got killed, too. So, looking for some serious dire wolf revenge here. And yeah, well, so, hopefully, well, you know, Nymeria's out there being a being a badass, but yeah, w- uh, that's which a, would, kind of a book thing. Yeah, and I, I wish they would do that in the show. Uh, yeah. I won't, we won't get into that too much. So, 
Then we see the Night's King enters into the cave. And so I thought this was interesting because the White Walkers could get through the fire, but yes, the, but the Whites can't. couldn't. Yes. So I'm, I'm really curious about that. And it, like I said, I think that's the best thing about the show is that there's still so many questions left unanswered that we're going to get answered throughout this. Yeah, but a huge, huge setup. And then Brendan Rivers, the Three-Eyed Raven, is still, you know, warged in the past, or green-seeing into the past, and uh, he gets taken out. Yeah, by the Night's King. By the Night's King. And so, you know, I don't have a lot of love lost for the Three-Eyed Raven. That doesn't hit me near as hard as some of the other other events that take place. And so... um. They're running out of the back, and then Leaf kind of sacrifices herself. She has what, her last little fireball that she holds yeah. on to. Ooh, that was brutal, though, huh? No kidding. Man, that was uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. And so they're running out of the back, and then Mira tells Hodor to hold the door. <laughs> and he it holds it, man. Fu- Oh, yeah, but it just all comes full circle. Yeah, and so I'm really curious. You know, do you think that Hodor knew that he was going to die? Yeah, okay, so I've gotten this question. I know we talked about it on our own, but I have gotten this question. Um, I, once I hate being ambiguous. Yes and no. I think, okay, so you mentioned his attitude changed. You know, when they show up at the front door and Mira goes and checks. Uh-huh. And that he knew something was up. Um, but I think it's also one of those things... I kind of relate him to Bran in this regard. And that they don't know until it's happening. But then it's like one of those deja vu kind of moments. Where, like, they knew all along, but the event that is making it occur like makes everything like seem like come together seamlessly. Uh-huh. So I don't know. I don't I think he knew like when they were probably, you know, getting to the end of the of the run and the door that sh- stuff was not good. Yeah. And well, so, I mean, what do you think? Do you think he knew? I don't know. It, it's weird because like I said his his demeanor does change. And yeah, I really don't know. I, I want to think so because I think that would be really cool in yeah. that Hodor knew that he was going to die eventually but still took on the task that he was asked to do. And so I think that really makes him a, a noble person. I, he's already noble, but you know, I think that really adds to the character. And so yeah. f- from a you know a happy ending kind of, you know, uh, uh, for a bittersweet end, I guess I th- I would like for that to be true. Put it that yeah, way. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah I'm with you on that. Needless to say, my heart is still destroyed from Oof. from watching Willis at the time go into his seizures. Yeah, and I mean that's just brutal. And and then th- the episode just ends, and there's no music. You know, there's no there's nothing. And so, for the red wedding, at least. At the end of that episode, we at least had the Reigns of Castamere playing in the background. Yeah. But that this was just, was like, just... silent. <laughs> I know. I mean, what a what a just 
hugely emotional journey. Uh, they've come so far. Hodor, from a young age, you know, was predisposed to fulfilling this kind of destiny that was caused by the person he's literally been taking care of for five years. Yeah, I, I, I say that in show terms, uh, yeah. not in not in their timeline, but uh, you know, for years, and has gone through so much. Um, I thought this was really just a couple of like notes on this. I thought this was really cleverly executed. Um, I thought it was telling that the children sacrificed themselves for Bran. Yeah. You know, like they had just gone through this moment where, you know, they weren't talking about Bran directly. They were talking about men, you know, humans, uh-huh. uh, you know, and the, and the creation of the white walkers and all that stuff. But we had just gone through all of that. We had learned the origin story kind of, uh, but they gave up themselves uh, and you know, and to be fair, they had been spending their time protecting Brendan Rivers, who was recruiting Bran to come and fulfill all of these things, you know, to occur. So, yeah. like, I just I'm really confused at their motivations, but I thought it was very telling that, you know, they had given this setup to Mira in the two epi- in two episodes prior, where they said, you know, he's going to need you. You've got to play your part. Mm-hmm. You know, all that stuff. But I thought it was cleverly done. What a send-off, I mean, for Hodor. Uh, you know, we finally learned it all came full circle, and it was just, like, insane to just watch this, like, go down. And they, you know, Mira and Bran, you know, fade into the mist. Absolutely. And so the main thing this tells me is that everything that Bran touches turns to shit, <laughs> essentially. I mean, so you start with him getting mischievous, with what's going on in the tower yep. in, in season one, episode one. And that leads to him getting thrown from the tower and the entire war starting because, you know, the Lannisters then tried to, or people then tried to assassinate Bran, which led Catelyn to do what she did. And then, you know, Bran's also responsible or, or is involved in the death of Jojen. Yep. Um, then he also sends Rickon and Asha <laughs> to the last hearth thinking they'd be safe. Well, spoiler, I guess not spoiler alert, but newsflash, yep. they're not. And we yep. see where that's ended up. And now we see Hodor gets taken down. And so obviously Bran has a very important part to play in this entire story. And he is really the vehicle that... George and Dan and Dave use to tell the past and to kind of link the past with the present because so much of what has happened in the past, you know, obviously the future is very affected by that. And so I think this is a very clever way of telling, you know, the Song of Ice and Fire through Bran. Yeah, which is so weird because... Let's just think about how much people hated his storyline. And George totally did the slow play. Yeah. And once again, just delivered. You know, like, I'm not, never, not everybody's going to agree, but you can't deny that this was one of the most, like, epic reveals that the show has had to date. Oh, absolutely. But, and I find it funny because I like his storyline for what it reveals 
but as a character, Bran is my second to last favorite Stark behind Catelyn, or I guess in front of Catelyn. She is the absolute worst. But I just I, I can't find myself supporting his the character that much. I, I like seeing him on the screen because we get to see these important events like the Tower of Joy, like you know, uh like like the the White Walkers and, and the children of the forest creating the White Walkers. That's awesome. But I'm just I'm not a big brand fan and I, I think that after this episode, uh the numbers are kind of piling up in that direction as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. But a heck of an episode. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, quick question for you. Uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, once HBO has now started doing this After the Thrones kind of television, like, it's like a, a televised podcast, essentially, where yeah, these two guys, have you watched it at all? I have not. Well, I have not seen a minute of it. Let me give you and our listeners out there a heads up. That show sucks. It is <laughs> awful. And I get that, obviously, they are doing what we do, or maybe we're doing what they do. I don't know how you want to look at that. And they obviously have the means to do it a lot better than we do. Sure. But there's just zero substance to it. And it's like they crack these funny little puns every now and then and then, like, look at the camera and, like, laugh at each other. It's just painful to watch. <laughs> it really is. Oof. Well, then so, I probably will not watch it. So, for all listeners out there, keep listening to this and don't watch that trash. <laughs> so. Oh, man. Anyway. All right. Uh, well. Overall, what would you rate this episode? Um, I'm giving this episode a 9.5. Um, I gave it. I did not give it a 10 just because I thought there were a couple things that were a little awkward. Um, specifically, I thought the... just I appreciated it, but I thought the Marine stuff was a little weird. And like we literally saw Daenerys and Jorah for 30 seconds. Um, yeah. And I know they were trying to move some things forward. Uh, but if, I thought it was a little oddly placed. I know we still got to bounce around a lot, but I thought it was a little oddly placed. But um, I thought it was huge on the delivery from George, like directly playing, you know, to Dan and Dave and saying, you know, this is where all this stuff is going toward. Um, I'll eventually get there in another six thousand pages. But <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, I gave it a nine point five. Uh, I want to echo what Matt said about production. Uh, this is an immense undertaking of a show, and I thought all of the you know elements and things that they do to make it what it is really came together. Yeah, um, and, and I gave this one a nine as well, uh, mostly because of all the lore that they explain with yeah. it, and especially revolving the White Walkers. But I did have to ding them a little bit for the lack of character development with Euron. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really my, my main thing with it. But, um, I do want to give also, uh, uh, some pluses on this episode where one that we didn't see any of Sam and Gilly because <laughs> that boat scene was about three minutes too long and you're over it. And we also didn't have to be tortured with the high sparrow torturing yes. people. Yes. No, so. I'm on board with that. Cause that I'm over that. Yep. So. And one last parallel I want to make real quick, mm -hmm. and I noticed this right before we started recording, is that we always refer to Dan and Dave as the double Ds. Yeah. But 
district dogma is also two D's. So I think I'm going to start referring to us as Double D 2.0. Double D. I like it. You know, I actually, we we did not name the network after them. So uh, that's no. funny. No. Uh, good. So, yeah, that is a good parallel. So, so as usual, everybody, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we really like doing this, and we love to have listeners. Uh, we've been really building up our listener base now. I think we are uh, getting streamed in 13 different countries and from people on the East Coast uh, and the West Coast and everywhere in between uh, in the United States. So thank you all for listening. Keep on sharing this. Uh, mm-hmm. Be sure to like our Twitter page, at District Dogma. And uh, anything you want to hear, if there's any content you want us to cover, any questions you have, uh, shoot us an email over at districtdogmanetwork at gmail.com. We'd love to interact with you all and to answer any questions you have. Yeah, we're, uh, we're happy to do that. We're happy to provide you know any kind of content or answer any questions that you may have. We really appreciate everybody taking the time uh, to listen. It, we've had a tremendous outpouring of support from people we know, people we don't know. Uh, so thanks to everybody, uh, you know, for, for staying, you know, staying here with us. And so Bauer, who is our sponsor for this episode again? Sandor's house of poultry. You'll want to eat every damn chicken in the place. All right, guys. Well, thank you for tuning in and always remember the night is dark and And full full of terrors. terrors.